The reading tonight is from Genesis, starting at chapter 11, verse 10, and that can be found on page 2 of the Church Bibles, sorry, 12, page 12 of the Church Bibles. So the reading is Genesis 11, verse 10 through to chapter 12, verse 9. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived thirty-five years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived thirty years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived thirty-four years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived four hundred and thirty years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived thirty years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, the grandson, his grandson Lot of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land, as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Thank you very much, Matt, especially for taking us through all those names. Uh, Do keep that open. Uh, I'd like to start by taking you back to August 2002, uh, which if it shows you nothing else shows my debt to John Tuckwell in teaching me how to preach. Um, August 2002, I was on an outward-bound course uh, in Pembrokeshire, sort of St. David's Head. We were doing sort of uh, rock climbing and stuff. Uh, Rock climbing going up uh, was absolutely fine. Um, But then our instructor, Ben, started explaining this thing called abseiling to us. And he was going on about how cool and, and exciting it was. Basically, you got to pretend you were in the SAS, was how he put it. And I wasn't entirely convinced. I was sort of looking over this cliff face and thinking, that's a perfectly good and solid lift, cliff face. Why would I want to lean off that in midair? That sounds quite dangerous. Um, I'm not scared of heights. I am scared of falling off cliffs. Um, ben was great. Ben was, was trying to, to reassure me, to, to point out that everything was going to be fine, uh, pointing out the ropes uh, and the harnesses. There was something else on my mind. Um, it wasn't that I was overweight as a 12 year No, one of my friends did refer to me as a small whale. Um, I think I called him something equally rude back, but never mind. Anyway, I wasn't convinced the harness could take my weight. I was like, Ben, aren't I a bit fat for this? Ben said, Rob, I've been doing this for years. I promise you the harness can take your weight. But, but just do it. Just lean away from the rock face. But, but what if, trust me. The Christian life is a lot like abseiling. There are commands. Stop clinging to the security of the cliff face and lean back out. And there are promises. The rope will hold. Sounds simple, but when you try and live it, well, it's like being told how to abseil for the first time. God's commands seem quite difficult and costly. And his promises, well, they seem a little bit unreal, unlikely. And this can be true whether you've been living the Christian life for years or you're still figuring out what you make of it all. You may have come here tonight exhausted and fed up 
with doing what God tells you to do. I'm sure we all have days like that, doubting the point of it all. Or or looking in at Christianity from the outside, you might be thinking, isn't the cost quite high? And aren't these promises, the down payments, a bit meager? Well, our passage tonight contains a command and a series of promises made by God to a man called Abram, who will later become Abraham. The command is difficult and costly. He is to leave his home, his friends, everything he has known, and go to a strange land. And the promises seem ludicrous. They, they fly in the face of everything a rational human being would believe. Back in 2002, after more than a few moments' hesitation, I did lean away from the rock face. And I was there, suspended in midair, and it was glorious. It was a gorgeous day. We're out on this headland, sea breeze, everything worked. God had, be- sorry, Ben had made good on his promise, just as God would. Our passage goes to show us how Abraham trusted God, and because of that, he obeyed. We will only keep going with God when we listen to his promises. And that's why we're going to think tonight about those promises in more detail. We're going to ask three questions. To whom does God make promises? What are God's promises like? And how should we respond to them? So first, what kind of people does God make his promises to? What kind of people do we need to be? There are many times I've sat in church wondering whether I am good enough for God, religious enough, holy enough. And we might think this as we come to Abraham. Because after all, who was the last person in Genesis whom God had spoken to? It had been Noah back in chapter 6. Noah, who is described as a righteous man. Is that what we need to be like? Righteous? Good? Holy? Well, let's have a look at Abraham and his family. What kind of people were they? Because the Bible singled them out. That's, that's the point of all of those names that we heard. Back in chapter 10, we were dealing with empires and kingdoms, big scale stuff. Chapter 11's just narrowed us down and down and down, one child from each generation down until we get to Terah and Abraham and family. What, what's so special? about this family? Nothing. There isn't anything special about them. They are an utterly ordinary family. They have their share of of struggles and troubles, and we see the especially heavy burden for Sarai in verse 30, which we'll come back to. But if you've been here the past few weeks, you'll know there's been a pattern through Genesis from chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, all the way through to chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, of humanity getting it wrong, of every inclination of the human heart turning to evil. And this is still going on with Terah and Abram and family. The original readers would probably pick this up better than we can, so we need to do a little bit of digging. We need to notice where they live. It's called Ur of the Chaldeans. It's a Big city in in southern Iraq. Wealthy city, lots of trade and lots of commerce, people coming and going. And it was a city filled with temples. We've excavated many of them uh, in recent decades. 
many different gods and spirits. Uh, chief among them was a god called Nana Sin, god or sometimes goddess of the moon. And the inhabitants of Ur had built a massive temple right in the middle of their city to worship the moon. Surely Abraham's family didn't get involved in that sort of thing, did they? The ancestors of Israel who worship only one God. When the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, God says this to the people of Israel. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, worshipped other gods. This is a family that's utterly part of the normal religion of their city, worshipping lots of different gods, moon, stars, sun, what have you. They ignore their creator God, and they settle for worshipping the lights in the night sky. They, They look up to a massive sphere of rock to help them with their troubles. It's a bit like going abseiling, but instead of rope and harness, you, you take this shoelace. That's not going to hold your weight for very long. Maybe a moment, but then it'll soon snap. It's easy for us to mock the moon worshippers of past ages, but we are not so different. We have our struggles and our frustrations, just like Abraham. And like Abraham, we seek our refuge in the wrong place. What is it for you? What, uh, what picks you up when the day seems long? Um, for me, it's often as simple as a packet of digestive biscuits. But I'm sure there are many others we can think of that we wouldn't want to admit publicly at the front of church. Or, or maybe it's that we pin our hopes on that one thing that will give us security and happiness. Last week with Babel, we were thinking about our ambitions. Well, Stephen, what is it that we just seek for our, our refuge? Just that hope of a, of a good job with a pension or a happy relationship and so on. We all do it. We all seek help in the wrong places, just like Abraham's family worshipping the moon. And I'm sure there'll be times when we make, that makes us think we must have disqualified ourselves from God ever wanting to have anything to do with us. Do you sometimes feel as though the harness isn't quite strong enough to hold your weight? That the burdens, the struggles... And your own failings are just too much for God to bear them up. Well, if we do think that, we need to see who God makes his promises to. People who struggle, people who ignore him, people who worship his creation instead of him. These are the people God makes promises to. The promises of God are not for special people. They are not for holy people or for good people. They are not for people who have reached a minimum qualification. They are for anyone. And this makes our next point all the more remarkable when we look at what kind of promises does God actually make. Abraham's just been getting on with life, you know, occasionally worshipping the moon, most of the time looking after his flocks of sheep. And then chapter 12, verse 1, the creator of the universe starts talking to him. And what does this creator God have to say? I mean, you can imagine what he might have said. Boy, are you in trouble, Abraham. What on earth do you think you were doing worshipping the moon rather than me? Here is a list of the things I'm going to need you to do to make up for it before I'll even consider talking to you. No. What does God say? Well, first, there is a command. 
Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. Is this a test? Is this how Abram's going to make up for all those years of ignoring God? No, look at what God says next. Go to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Blessing, blessing, blessing. That is what God is up to. And it is something God is going to achieve, not Abraham. There's no, there's no conditions here. No, if you do this, then I might do this. All through these verses, one to three, I will show you, I will make you, I will bless you. I don't know what Abraham expected, but I'm pretty certain it wasn't this. He has nothing to recommend him, and yet God is going to bless Abraham beyond anything he's imagined. And that is true of us too. Now, obviously, some of these promises are specific to Abraham. God God does not promise to make each one of us into a great nation. He doesn't promise to give us property rights in the Gaza Strip. But that promise of blessing is a promise for us. And you get this in verse 3. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We've narrowed down and down and down in Genesis to this one family. But God is clear, this one family, their blessing is going to affect people from all over the earth and throughout history. People exactly like us, 4,000 years later on the other side of the world. Uh, The Apostle Paul in the New Testament thought quite a lot about Abraham. And he speaks of how in these verses God was preaching the good news about Jesus in advance a little bit like a film trailer. It's a taste of what is coming, which is why it says, in you shall all nations be blessed. Because if we believe the good news about Jesus, wherever in the world we're from, these promises of blessing are for us. Like Abraham, there's nothing to recommend us. We've often ignored God, and yet the blessing is for us too. Now, what does this blessing actually involve? Um, Is it something you do when people sneeze from the pollen count too high? Well, no. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it speaks of blessing as God making his face to smile on you. It is saying God is for you. God is on your side. And we we get this idea just with this, that verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. God is so completely on Abraham's side that it's as though history is now going to be divided between those who show favor to Abraham and those who don't. I was thinking about this. It it reminded me quite a bit of NATO. It's been in the news recently. but Actually, there's a lot of parallels. The whole basis of NATO is that if one member state is attacked, it's treated as an attack on, on all of its members. They have promised to fight for each other. Now, obviously, some NATO countries are a lot stronger than other NATO countries. Um, That was definitely true when it was founded back in 1949. The countries of Western Europe were were exhausted by the Second World War, still recovering. And then you had the US with all of its planes and its tanks and its ships. But that didn't matter. 
the U.S. had promised to protect those fellow members of NATO if the threat of Stalin had become more real, if, if the Soviet Union had invaded in the early 1950s, you know, those countries, Western Germany, would have been stuffed. But because of NATO, it wouldn't have been an attack just on West Germany. It would have been an attack on all of NATO. All of NATO would have come to the rescue. And what's all the more remarkable when you think about it, is that only a few years before, the US and Germany had been at war. You know, for just reasons. But it's still remarkable that countries that a few years before had been fighting the US could now rely on its support and its defense for help whenever it was needed. God is making a treaty with Abraham, And it's very like NATO. God by far the superior, powerful partner, despite everything Abraham has done, promises, I will protect you. I am for you, whatever happens. And that's going to be a comfort for Abraham. After all, he's an old man, and he's about to set off on a long journey through the desert. He is vulnerable. And yet God has promised to protect him. Now, it's worth saying we, have, we or Abraham have nothing that we can bring to force, Abraham, force God into this treaty, this contract. No, God chooses to enter this contract, covenant is the word the Bible uses, freely and, and unilaterally if we want to keep using Cold War language. And that's great news because it means Abraham can't ruin anything from his side of the bargain. And we're going to see that a bit more next week. Whatever happens, an attack on Abraham is an attack on God. And this is the same for all those who believe in Jesus. God is for you. He will never stop being for you. He will never look on you with anything other than a smiling face which will work all things only for your ultimate good. These are God's promises. These are the kinds of promises God makes, undeserved and yet utterly boundless in their love and their kindness. How should we, how should we respond? How did Abraham respond? Well, this brings us back to the command in verse 1. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. The promises are amazing, but there is a problem. The commands are hard. The road is difficult. Just think about what Abraham's being asked to do. Leave everything that's given you security and comfort and identity, your home, your friends, your extended family. Leave it. Abandon everything those places of refuge we thought about earlier. Just think what it would mean to abandon them, to, to turn your back on those desires for good, walk out the door and never look back. If you're anything like me, we cling to them like a 12-year-old boy clings to a rock face. We do not want to let go. What does Abraham do? The Lord had said to Abraham, go. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He took his wife Sarai, 
his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had acquired in Haran and settled out for the land of Canaan. He's going all in. It's like that moment in Casino Royale when Bond calls out the, the bad guy he's trying to beat at poker, putting all of his chips in. It's a huge gamble. There's a sharp intake of breath because everything is at stake. It's the same with Abram. Everything he is leaving behind. And it is the same for us when we obey God's commands. Or at least it can feel it like it. I know, what might it be? Will I invite my co-worker to tales of the unexpected? What if they say no and they think I'm a weirdo? Aren't the stakes just a bit too high? Will I tell my accountability partner the truth about the websites I've been visiting and ask for their help? Won't it be really awkward? Won't they judge me and I'll just feel guilty? No, the stakes are too high. These and similar situations, are we simply just to try really, really hard to to believe and, and conjure up the courage to get on with it? Is that what Abraham did when he made his gamble? I mean, the stakes are even higher for him. If he fails, if this fails, Abraham loses everything. There will be no home to go back to. And yet the odds seem ludicrous. The promise is there's a problem. God has said, I will make you a great nation. You will have offspring. They will have offspring. They will become a great nation. But what is the one thing we know of Abraham and Sarai? Well, chapter 11, verse 30, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And then when Abraham gets to this land God has shown him, it looks as though everything's been in vain. Verse 6, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. There's already people here. Your wife can't have children. And yet God appears again and doubles down on his promises. Yes, Abram, to your offspring I will give this land. How? None of this makes sense. How can Abram commit so much on the basis of so little? Does God being for us actually make that much of a distant difference? What difference to the, to the harness and the rope make if you're scared of heights? How can we obey and persevere when the promises to us can seem just as ridiculous? Think of the promises God has made to us. You are holy and righteous in my sight because of what Jesus has done. Might be one way of summing it up. And yet when we look at our lives, we certainly do not look holy or righteous. Just as Abraham saw Canaanites running around everywhere, our sins run rampant. And when we try and do good and obey God's commands, we find ourselves unable to conceive, incapable of doing that which we know we should be doing. There is nothing about us that is holy or righteous. And right by our ears, a little voice slithers in, saying, Did God really say that you, of all people, could ever be holy and righteous? After everything you've done, 
all the ways you have failed, do you really believe God can deliver on those ludicrous promises? You're pathetic if you think God could or would save you. Verse 8. Abraham went on to the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued towards the Negev. The land is still full of Canaanites. Sarai is still unable to conceive. Our lives are filled with our sins and our failures. But the whispering serpent has made one fatal error. The one who makes these promises is not some powerless moon god. He is not like us humans that he should lie or change his mind. The one who makes these promises to Abraham and to us is the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, who looked out on the empty void and said, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God looks in on the barren void of our hearts. The cold, empty space that has been hollowed out by sin and says, let there be light. Because this is the God who looked into the cold, empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth and said, let there be life. Abraham walks off into the Gev, walking around this land that has been promised him, fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And he did not waver through doubt about these promises, but was strengthened in his trust and gave glory to God. How do we persevere in the Christian life? How do we lean away from the rock face? We look at the rope and harness we have been given in God's promises. We look away from ourselves, our lack of courage, our failures of resolution. And we look to the character of the one who makes these promises, the God who called into beings the thing that are not and gives life to the dead. It is not in the character of the God who made the universe to have his promises fail. And his promise is to work for the good of all those who trust in the promises fulfilled in Jesus. God is for you, whether you succeed or fail. He is the harness and the rope that will never, ever let you go. Even when all human reason says you should be plummeting down from the cliff, he will lift you up and make you stand as nothing else can. The God who has begun a good work will. He has promised and will abide by it. He will bring it to completion. And it is him that is working in you to will and to act to fulfill those same promises. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we look at ourselves. We look at humanity following the fall of Adam and Eve. And we see that there is nothing to recommend us. Nothing that could make you bless us or favor us. And yet in these verses we see the great turning point of your holy word. When you spoke into the chaos and the mess and the sin and made these promises to Abraham which endured and bore fruit even in the life, death and resurrection of Christ such that these are promises to us too. Lord, give us the strength to believe and to trust and in trusting you alone to obey all of your good commands knowing that you cannot do other than to work all things for our good in Jesus. Amen.